listening to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. And again, Glenn, since this is around the holiday time, uh, and we're recording this just after Thanksgiving, uh, my question to you somewhat relates to that. Uh, you can get anything you want at... Ooh. You can get anything you want on the internet. Uh, well, sort of. It, it's anything you want at the Double Loop Podcast, uh, as long as it relates to, to fingerprints, uh, especially if you sign up for the extra content and all of our old episodes at uh, patreon.com slash Double Loop Podcast. And since I've been a little uh, hard on you lately with some of mine, I will give you one here that I'm sure you've heard of. This well-known saying, it's the best thing since... Sliced bread? Since someone has now donated on Patreon and has become a new Patreon subscriber. Or sliced bread. <laughs> well, uh, thanks again to to Brian, Adam, and Mara for becoming subscribers uh, and um, getting access to all that all that information that we're going to start posting here soon and all of the old episodes that are already up on Patreon.com. And um, we have a couple of recent questions again about that, so I want to address that real quick right here. Um, so uh, Glenn and I decided you know, we, we, want to, we want to sound better, we want to improve our podcast so how can we start getting in uh, some income from the podcast, basically? And uh, we've we've been experimenting with a few different things. Uh, we tried uh, some ads over the summer uh, where uh, listeners would have to go and sign up for some service for us to, to get paid. That didn't really pay off at all. Uh, we've uh, been running ads for uh, you know, companies specific to the latent print field, uh, and that's uh, that's working. And then we've also made a push to uh, get subscribers to Patreon.com and uh, to give them kind of a uh, something back in return. Cause that's the whole idea of how Patreon works. Um, we put our first hundred or so episodes uh, behind this paywall, where for just even just a dollar a month. Uh, then you can go and listen to all of the old episodes of the Double Podcast there. You would, after signing up through Patreon, go to their site and you can see all of the old episodes and listen to them from that website. Or you should be able to get a link uh, to put into your podcast player on your phone or whatever uh, to get it that way as well. Uh, so if you guys have any questions or thoughts about you know us moving in this direction, you know please let us know or if you have any trouble finding the old episodes uh, through Patreon, let us know. Again, just an experiment to try to uh, get funds to improve the podcast with new microphones, uh, new soundboard, stuff like that. So uh, again, big thank you to all of our uh, subscribers now that are contributing through uh, through Patreon. So getting back to the question I asked you, uh, Glenn, it was um, uh, the, referring to a, a song that is about Thanksgiving. Uh, it's Arlo Guthrie's Alice's Restaurant. Uh, you can get anything you want mm. at Alice's Restaurant. Um, of course. The uh, the holiday continues. Uh, I just finished making some turkey enchiladas last night, and they were delicious. Uh, anyway, things been going good with you? Indeed. Yeah, and excited about talking about uh, a new case tonight, and we've moved on from making a murderer. Finally. <laughs> Thank goodness. I'm pretty sure we're going to get less pushback and uh, controversy 
uh, on this case. Yeah, that's probably true. Although you never know, conspiracy theories. Yeah, yeah. I, I think he he's one of those that has uh, like groupies and stuff, um, or did before he he died. But uh, I'm pretty sure he was one of those. So, all right, we're ready to jump in. Indeed. All right. So this week we're going to be talking about Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, who. Well, in the mid-80s, um, terrorized basically Cal- all of California with a vicious series of, of crimes. Uh, Glenn, do you remember hearing about this like in the news while it was happening? No, I was probably too young and didn't really, wasn't really aware of it. I mean, living in the Midwest and in Michigan, we had our own crimes, <laughs> more shootings and, you know, things like that. Um, uh, if you might remember Marvin Gaye, uh, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. His dad. Yeah, that was right. sad. That was, you know, Motowny and, and related more to the mid- Midwest. So, no, I, actually, I, I really don't. And, and, and in fact, I think I confused this case when I was growing up with the Zodiac Killer. I thought they were kind of the same thing. And I, I, there's this vague recollection that maybe for a while they, they were mistaken for each other. I don't know if that's true or not or me. Uh, the Mandela effect, misremembering <laughs> the reality. Right, right. Um, that, that, I think I remember hearing that at one point, too, as while they were still investigating one of the theories that was just thrown out in probably a host of other theories was that it was the Zodiac Killer come back uh, from the yeah. late 60s. I think he went into the 70s a little bit, maybe. Um, uh, I remember the Zodiac Killer 70s, but I, I could be wrong. But um, but this is this is very much now the mid 80s, basically 84 and 85 were when, when just all of these crimes uh, took place. Right, and yeah, I was definitely too young uh, as well to uh, to to know about it then. But it was one of those in the list of serial killers. Uh, he he uh, he comes up pretty quickly, and um, his just look, his face, his mugshot is just such a creepy face that uh, it always stands out to me. And uh, I just, I now just see him every time I watch uh, Criminal Minds. Uh, that that's. One of the faces in like a collage of serial killers uh, in the intro for that show that uh, mm. that uh, that's there. Um, so let's start uh, with a little kind of background information on on who was Richard Ramirez. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit kind of background information and then get into an interview with someone who was uh, you know, who w- was uh, inv- helped investigate the the, uh, the case. But uh, this portion uh, comes from a couple articles. One from Biography dot com. And another from an old uh, L.A. Times uh, article from the the '80s when the trial was uh, was going on. So um, Richard Ramirez, he didn't have the most idyllic uh, childhood. Uh, he had a number of head injuries as a child, uh, including getting the in, hit in the head so hard at one point that he developed epilepsy, and that didn't help when uh, his uh, cousin older cousin came back from Vietnam and just even as a kid um, got shown pictures of his cousin uh, torturing and mutilating Vietnamese women uh, from his time over uh, in the war. And then uh, witness was basically in the room when his cousin uh, came home and murdered uh, his, his wife uh, after an argument. So it's one of those things where obviously none of that excuses his later terrible crimes, but it didn't help. Right, it didn't Glenn? help. It, it, did. <laughs> it didn't help. Right. Uh, 
So, uh, and this is kind of goes into kind of a common story that you hear about uh, serial killers is the head injury. You know, there's definitely some theories about uh, that breaking something loose or contributing it in some way to later problems uh, that that uh, that occur. Which, you know, now I'm really going far afield. If it comes down to something like that, I suppose today with with the medications and things that we have, there are probably ways to treat that. But if it is truly now just a broken defect, is there any possibility of of rehabilitation if the the person is truly now just broken? Right. It's so hard to to tell. I think. I mean, because those kinds of head injuries, you, you don't know what it's. You don't know what you're going to get. Because um, you know, there's head injuries that then affect what colors people see or what what people smell, sure. right? Or that ones that just people just become a different person. Their personality completely changes. Or you know, theoretically, here you you become a psychopath and lose empathy. And right. uh, I mean, the ones where you all of a sudden lose smell or you you start smelling colors. You know, is more easy to notice right away, but when the head injury results in empathy being broken, it's right. uh, I think a harder thing to notice. Yeah. Well, anyway, as, as you're pointing out, he had fairly traumatic childhood, not the best family system, and uh, obviously a very disturbed childhood. So, um, skip ahead, skip ahead. He drops out of school in the ninth grade. Uh, he's, he's kind of just a drifter. He, he becomes well known as having bad breath. Like that's just when people meet him, that's one of the things that they notice about him. Hmm. Um, his first known murder and then there may have been others, you know, that who knows, uh, in, in this timeline beforehand, uh, was in June of 84 uh, when uh, he attacks a 79-year-old victim uh, who sexually assaulted, stabbed, and killed uh, during a break-in to, to her house. Now, this is after just years of becoming of a serial burglary. I mean, that's just basically what he did. He had uh, master keys to different cars, and he would just... He had an entire pattern of uh, find, trying to find an unlocked door. Uh, if he was going into a house, getting in stealing lots of stuff. Uh, but uh, in this case, uh, he started the first that we know of with the sexual assault and uh, and, and stabbing uh, this lady. Um, and then uh, it was after that, it was a full like nine months later, uh, March of 85 is when he, he next struck. Uh, he broke into the house of uh, Maria Hernandez and Dale uh, Okazaki. Uh, but then the same night went out uh, to attack uh, another another lady, Silian Yu, and got his first nickname, the Valley Intruder, uh, which I always think is kind of funny, especially in this kind of time period, how quickly the press assigns uh, monikers to uh, to to these people. I think the '80s was like the I guess '70s and '80s were like the heyday of the of the serial killer where that was what was in the press all the time, and they all had these names. And even when we were talking a couple episodes back about the East Area Rapist, Vidalia Ransacker, or the original Night Stalker, and then now he's known as the Golden State Killer, it was just these names just kind of were thrown about. And it's funny how how many different people kind of 
got assigned all these different names. No, that's that's actually a really good point. I had hadn't noticed that we had lost lost that basically in the nineties. You're you're absolutely right. They they were the I mean the press you know played obviously a much more important role in people's lives and you know it was the only news outlet really uh, you know papers and and uh, the, you know the nightly news so I suppose it was a little more fantastical as well so uh, uh, this kind of develops into a pattern and uh, he continues these crimes throughout 1985 uh, where he would uh, break into a house if there was a um, a man there, he would uh, shoot and kill the husband uh, and then just really brutally assault and often kill uh, the woman that is uh, is present. And also, uh, he was obsessed with uh, Satanism and Satanic rituals. And he would uh, then, in some circumstances, draw pentagrams upon the wall or on the person and um, uh, basically force the per- the the woman that he's attacking uh to swear allegiance to satan in order to you know stay alive or he'd kill them and uh at that point since he's now spreading also across california the press gets to that new nickname the night stalker right so um kind of going now a little bit more into the forensics uh, of the case uh one of the things that really starts linking uh, all these crimes together is because the descriptions would sometimes vary uh, the mode of killing versus stabbing versus uh, uh, versus shooting would sometimes vary uh, but a lot of these crimes had shoe prints outside of uh, the house and there were these Avia shoes Glenn do you remember these this shoe brand because I do I, you do okay because yeah, I it's, only it's... remember hearing of this shoe brand in relation to this case Oh, uh, yeah, I'm, and I'm trying to think if this was like a brand you get at Sears or Montgomery Ward or those other stores, maybe in Kmart, that, w- that were more, quote-unquote, popular in the time. Right. Where, I, where, you know, if you couldn't afford the high-end stuff, this is where you go to get your regular sneakers. But, again, vague remembrance of the past. Well, uh, news to me, I just uh, typed that into my computer here. Still around. You can still get a pair of uh, Avia uh, running shoes um, by going to avia.com. So for some reason, since I'd only heard of it in this case, I kind of got this idea that the notoriety of the Night Stalker case had kind of made this company fold. But I guess not. Uh, in it With laces or Velcro, still available. <laughs> I remember the Velcro. Velcro was huge in the 80s. A portmanteau. To go off on a little tangent, uh, do you do you know the what it, that's a portmanteau of? No, I do not. <laughs> uh, velour and crochet, huh. French French, you know the uh, velour fabric, and then crochet for hook in huh. in French, kind of describing what Velcro is. <laughs> anyway, that's extra content for free right there. Um, <laughs> so uh, with with this now task force linking all these scenes together partly on the MO, but partly on with these shoes. They try to figure out who this person is, putting out uh, sketches from the people that have survived his attacks. and um, uh, But they've also collected fingerprints over this time period from various scenes, but I've just never been able to develop a suspect that, uh, that matches all this. 
Yeah, uh, and you know, one of the things that you you know you point out, you know, you have all of these various deaths, but what's what's strange to me, and probably what would have made this not only a very terrifying case, but a very confusing case, is they're not all in one city or one location. They are truly all over California, and they range from the Bay Area all the way down to the L.A. area and Orange County and such, which. That would be entirely confusing to me because, I mean, one thing, you know, we know about serial killers is they tend to be predatory. They have an area that they're comfortable with. You know, they stalk their prey. They, they, you know, ha like you said, they have um, a, a mode which they go about this. They're usually fairly organized. They bring their weapon with them. They leave with their weapon. You know, they and, and they, they plan and they they literally stalk out their their prey and plan things out. And so for this to be all over California, that is weird. And I imagine that it would have been it, it could have easily thrown investigators off and profilers off because, you know, or there's some connection. You know, he's got family in the L.A. area or he's a businessman that travels between these two places. You know, maybe he's, you know, works for the government. So he's down in the L.A. area, but then has to go up to, you know, Sacramento area or something like that. I mean, just what you could think of a million different scenarios and they would all be wrong. And, and none of them. None of them represent why he was going. He was just traveling around the, the state and it was quite frankly fairly random it appeared. It, it didn't really ever appear to have any pattern other than that his family was what they were in. But uh, he had El Paso, El, El Paso, and I, and I think there are some other states like Arizona, New Mexico that he would travel through. But, I mean, other than that, I mean, and, and that's not even in California. So, again, it, it really must have been mind-boggling and infuriating for investigators not to see any real pattern there. And, and there never really was. Well, I, I totally get your point, Glenn. Um, L.A. is a definitely a hodgepodge of different uh, suburbs. And, and uh, I mean, I've traveled there quite a number of times and still don't quite get it all right. Uh, except for the you know where the big ones Riverside and Burbank and Orange County and plus back in that time period, willingness to work together with other agencies was a lot I think less than what it is now, which just adds in a whole level of difficulty to this this investigation. Yeah, good so, point. you know the the, uh, the Night Stalker. Uh, you know you see here uh, I got this map of of uh, different basically jurisdictions where he made his attacks. And it was from uh, Glassell Park, Rosemead, Monterey Park, Whittier, back to Monterey Park, up to Burbank, over to Monrovia and Arcadia, Sierra Madre, back to Monterey Park. I, I mean, it's it's all over the L.A. area. And then right. in the middle of all that, all going all the way up to San Francisco Bay Area, uh, for the the murder up there, and then back down to uh, L.A. County, and then finally uh, down in Orange County in Mission Viejo. Uh, this this isn't normally the kind of behavior you'd expect, and uh, I think what it really came down to is in all those explanations of why someone might be moving around so much is that he was just a drifter, uh, yeah. and that's he didn't have a you know specific home base with which to operate in. He drifted. Uh, all across California and the Southwest uh, with you know, some regularity. And uh, his crimes you know, ended up drifting with him. 
Yeah, and and as you point out too, with his family in El Paso, and having you know going through New Mexico and Arizona, I mean, it's odd unless you know they just never attributed them that he didn't kill in those places either. You know that you know surprising that he did not. And it, that may have just been that he was just on the bus the whole time. You know, he mm. never really got off the bus and and hung around in those areas. Then again, he was in El Paso with his family for you know, at least longer stretches of time than just passing through. Uh, in the end, though, he did confess basically to, to all this stuff in his praise of Satan. I don't know, maybe he left out some stuff if there were some additional victims uh, in, uh, in other places like El Paso. But uh, at this point, we may, not, um, we may not get to know unless some of the evidence from old cases finally gets tested and linked back to him. But with DNA evidence being around now for a couple decades, you know, maybe maybe he just didn't commit crimes when he was visiting his family. Yeah, he's a family man. He was very uh, very focused on the family and hanging out, and it, it calmed him down. Well, you know, when when you're with your family, that's a whole another host of problems you have to deal with. Glenn, we we are very lucky to have a, a special guest joining us who uh, assisted in the investigation. Uh, and played a pivotal role in uh, the capture of Richard Ramirez. But before we go over to our interview with her, uh, why don't you uh, say a couple words about our sponsor for this episode? Right. We want to thank our sponsor, Idemia, the global leader in augmented identity. Their technology has combined digital and cloud expertise to bring efficiency and next-generation user experiences to their customers. Idemi has launched a new product called Case Aphis. It's a portable latent print examination tool supported by the full power of Idemia's flagship MBIS matching algorithms. It's a totally standalone system. doesn't need to connect to your main Aphis or internet. No security, firewall, or CGIS permission needed. It's a standalone tool for your casework. And, and, and frankly, uh, built for latent print examiners by latent print examiners in a way. Uh, latent print examiners had input into the development of this system. So it's designed to be a tool that latent print examiners can use. It lets you uh, solve complex and difficult cases faster by searching latent prints from a crime scene against a closed set of known prints on a case-by-case basis. And it can handle any kind of known prints major case prints, tips, sides, joints, palms, fingerprint cards, elimination cards, you name it. it can, if, it's, if it's rich detail, it can encode it. And this tool will improve your casework efficiency and reduce erroneous exclusions. Learn more about Idemia and Case Aphis by contacting us at info.usa at Idemia. That's I-D-E-M-I-A dot com. Solve your cases faster today with Case Aphis. All right, so we've been talking a little bit about the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez, uh, but for uh, this part of the story, uh, Glenn and I were uh, lucky enough to contact someone that was involved in the case, uh, so I want to welcome to the Double Loop podcast, uh, Becky Daher. Becky, thank you so much for joining us here today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Eric. Thank you. Uh, as a little bit of introduction, um, why don't you kind of describe to the listeners uh, where you used to work, what kind of uh, things you used to do uh, there in that position, and as a little you know, tradition here on the Double Loop Podcast, also talk about how you fell into the fingerprint world. As we usually say, most people don't seek out this profession. Uh, fingerprints usually tend to find people and pull them in. So uh, why don't you tell us uh, your story about how you, you came to uh, to do this work? 
Okay. Well, um, boy, that's the truth. And falling into it is exactly what happened to me. <laughs> I was <laughs> I was studying um, vocal music performance at the um, Cal State Long Beach in, here in California. And I was doing a lot of singing with different professional groups and recordings and so on and so forth. And I realized pretty quickly that I was not going to fare very well in retirement and I, it was like an epiphany came over me one day and I thought, gee, I need to get a real job. And so I um, got only hired. more musicians, you know, thought that <laughs> I mean, not yes. that being a music, musician isn't a real job, but I think more people try to make it a career than, than, the, than the world maybe Listen, really needs. <laughs> yeah, I have watched many, many, many of my friends struggle professionally yes. and really not accomplish. I mean, it's, it's personally very fulfilling and, and, um, you know, it's great when you're kind of artsy like that, but it does not always pay the bills. And especially when you're young and just starting out, but anyway, so I got a job with the County of Orange as a typist clerk in their court process serving area. And I really, really hated it. Oh, that sounds like such an exciting job though. Oh yeah, it was awful. Um, so, but I was, I was still doing my music. And, uh, so then because I was so unhappy there, I went to a job fair that the sheriff's department was hosting. And one of the captains suggested that I transfer over to the sheriff's records bureau in the warrants division, which I did. And I was working graveyards. So that really gave me an opportunity to do gigs during the day and recording and different things like that and work at night. So I was burning the candle at both ends while I was working several nights, some guys from upstairs in the ID bureau would come down and have coffee with us. And we housed all of the tampering cards in the records bureau at that time. So they would come down and have coffee and we got to chatting one time. And one of the things that I always enjoyed and took several classes on was photography. So they were telling me that they had a full service photo lab upstairs and asked if I wanted to go up and see it sometime. And I said, sure, you know, I'd love to. So I did when I got off the next morning and it was pretty early. I think I got off at seven and they quit at seven or somebody else started at seven. And so they took me through the photo lab and it was great. I, I, I loved it. And they asked me if I wanted to have a tour of the crime lab. I had no idea what a crime lab was at that time. <laughs> It wasn't, this so, wasn't, there wasn't CSI around or anything. Oh, heck no. No, nobody knew anything about it. <laughs> so uh, I did. I waited for the lab director, Larry Ragel, to come in. And he took me on a very nice tour. And he showed me all of the different aspects. Serology, which turned into forensic biology, which turned into DNA right. many, many years later. The RAS room, which was the rapid analysis room for drugs when the narcs would bring samples in. They would do a quick analysis, toxicology area, and they had blenders up on the shelf. And I said to Larry, oh, what's that? And he said, well, you know, we grind different major organs, heart, liver, lungs for cause of death drugs. And I just kind of muttered under my breath, ooh, yummy, a liver shake. And he <laughs> he turned around to me and said, you know, you might fit in here. Do you want to go to an autopsy? <laughs> I said, Yes. I don't know. 
what I was thinking, but anyway, well, I did. It's it's that question that every girl wants to hear, right? So, <laughs> do you yeah, want to really. go to an autopsy? Yeah. So he took me back down to the ID bureau and I went out with one of the photographers. She was very nice and very helpful. And she was explaining lots of things to me. And we went to the uh, county hospital and where the morgue was in the basement. And they started working on the person there on the table. And the deputy coroner turned around and looked at me and pointed at me and crooked her finger like, come here right now. So I walked over and she said, you can't see anything from way back there. I want you to stand right here the whole time, which I did. Okay. Yep. And I was completely fascinated, completely hooked. I watched Mary take all these photographs and I went back and said, where do I sign up? So about six weeks later, they transferred me up as a clerk in the crime lab. And then they created a position called a forensic specialist trainee. And I got got to be that person oh so this is a new position this is because back especially like the 60s 70s all this work in with fingerprints comparisons crime scene work was all done by sworn officers and yes uh, and in 1977 they had civilianized the lab in the id bureau and one of the reasons they did this was because that a deputy rotates in and out from every three to five years, and they do not have an opportunity to develop an expertise. Right. And so they felt it very important to have civilians in that position so that they could be there always and develop an expertise. So because there were no degree programs at that time, this was in 1981, I guess, by that time, they trained me in everything. You know, I went to the FBI Academy, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, DOJ's classes, Texas Tech University. They trained me on everything. And of course, we went out with training officers and then ultimately were cleared for more and more complex crime scene work and fingerprints. I worked at the sheriff's department in uh, starting in 1980, and I left in 1986 to go into private industry, and I actually worked for a company that manufactured lasers and alternate light sources that were portable, so you could actually take them to a crime scene. And it was precipitated by this case because they recognized the need in the community, and so they kind of tapped my understanding of the science and collaborated to help develop these new products. And it was great. I worked for them for 10 years and I had an opportunity to teach all over the world. And then um, after my youngest son was born, I went back to the sheriff's department and that's when I started working as a latent examiner. Okay. And so I, I worked there for another 18 years. So I have a 34 year history in forensics, both in as a practitioner and as uh, an instructor in for many different colleges, universities, and for uh, DOJ and the State Department. So, uh, uh, just to clarify, Orange County, especially for people who may not be familiar uh, with uh, with Southern California, is the county like just south of uh, the LA area, right? That's correct. Right. Okay. So, not not Orange County, Florida, or Orange County, New York, but <laughs> Orange County, right. California. Yes. And back in the 70s, I don't know, how many homicides would you say you guys would work a year? Um, I'm going to say about 40. You know, we had a lot of little towns within Orange County that we did 
allied services for. Right. And um, so we would work some of the smaller agencies that didn't have their own forensic people. We would work their homicides. And it's 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 a pretty big county. Um, but there were other agencies like Anaheim PD and Newport Beach PD. And they had their own people who responded to crime scenes. If they had a specific task like blood spatter analysis or collection or shoe print and tire track, because we did those specialties and they didn't, then they would call us out kind of as an extra adjunct task to to help them with those things. Right. And that's that's pretty standard even nowadays. Uh, the, The bigger the lab is, the more likely it is to have some of those smaller, more specialized services rather yes. than when you get down to the smaller and smaller labs, more likely they may just have, you know, just fingerprints or, uh, you know, something that is more involved in just about every case uh, in some ways. You know, we've been talking a little bit about Richard Ramirez, the, the Night Stalker, you know, all of the, the crimes, the rapes and the murders he was committing around the state of California. I mean, California was, was really gripped by the terror of this person at the time. So, uh, why don't you kind of talk a little bit about the environment, the mood of the state at that time and kind of what everybody was feeling and talking about? Yeah, well, you know, um, I actually lived in Mission Viejo at the time that he struck in Orange County in Mission Viejo. I recall very vividly that it was a very, very, very hot summer. You know, back in the 80s, it was not common particularly to have air conditioning in your home because it didn't used to get that hot here, right. um, but that summer it was really uncommonly hot. People had been admonished because of the things that were happening in Los Angeles, not to leave their doors and windows open and not to leave their house unsecured at night because that, that was when he would always hit. Got and um, so there was a really prevalent feeling of terror amongst everyone. That's all anybody was talking about. And uh, gosh, I, I think we were pretty surprised. It, it The closest city to Orange County that he had struck was in Diamond Bar. And that's right on the border of Orange County. And everything else was up, you know, in Glendale and very, very far from us. So we kind of really didn't think that he was going to come down to Orange County and hit us, but he did. And this is where you come into the story, or your agency, and then your involvement as well. Uh, talk a little bit about that that last crime that he committed down in Orange County, uh, and then how you got to be involved in this case. Okay. Well, <clears throat> he had stolen a car in Los Angeles and had driven it down to Orange County. He parked it on a street, and one of his MOs was that he would pick a house, a yellow house, close to the freeway. A yellow and house? Really? Yeah, I don't think I ever read that anywhere. I didn't realize that. That's that's pretty fascinating. Yeah, a yellow house close to the freeway. That's, I yeah. haven't heard that before. That's that's strange. It but. was, yeah, very strange. But um, he had driven down from the L.A. area after stealing a car, and he was parked in this neighborhood. And there was a young boy working in his garage. I think this young man was 13 years old, working on an ATV or a motorcycle or something. And he heard dogs barking in the in the neighborhood. And I, if I recall correctly, he thought he heard his sliding door jiggle and his dog inside of his house was going nuts. Oh. And he thought that was very odd. Yeah. So then he peeked out the side garage door 
and he saw a car that was unfamiliar to the neighborhood. He didn't think anything of it, went back to do his work. And then he heard a car start up. So he went and looked out again. And here was this orange Datsun little station wagon driving by. And he just <laughs> the most conspicuous make... car in all of California, an orange yes. Datsun station wagon, an orange Datsun station wagon. And he happened to make note, a mental note of part of the license plate number. 13 year old kid. And he may have actually even written it down. Richard Ramirez had struck three, two or three doors down from his house and he raped uh, his victim and shot her boyfriend five times in the head. This was the, the Erickson one? Inez Erickson and Bill Carnes. When he left, you know, shortly thereafter, she came out screaming and then, you know, the sheriff's department was called and they interviewed this young man and he gave them these partial license numbers. This hit the news immediately, of course. And I happened to be vacationing in Lake Tahoe. We're a huge camping family. And I was camping with my sister and her children. And I was in the camp shower and my niece came to the window and said, Aunt Becky, my mom got the newspaper. You need to come out here and read it. So I did. And I saw that the Night Stalker had hit in Orange County. We were very, very short-staffed at the time, and I just felt compelled to go back. So we packed everything up and hit the road and were home by that night. It's well, about an eight-hour drive from Tahoe say, to my house. Lake Tahoe is nowhere really close to Orange County. No, I mean, yes, it's no. in California, but yeah, like an eight-hour drive. On a good day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I, I, I love that. That. That's such a great detail, whereas I think, sadly, I probably would have been like, oh, thank God I'm on vacation and <laughs> not, <have to, laughs> not have to deal with that, get pulled into the chain of custody. So okay. I came home and they had done a lot of work on the case already. Of course, I didn't go to the crime scene. And, okay, so that was already um, all taken care of in that, that was, eight-hour yes, drive. That was already handled. Yeah. but But the one thing that... Uh, we had for this case was an argon ion laser. And there were not a lot of agencies on the West Coast that had an argon ion laser. And so, you know, we tried to utilize it really as often as we could under circumstances like this, really heinous crimes. So um, um, if, uh, if listeners aren't latent print examiners, uh, how would you use the laser uh, to to help you find fingerprints or what would what would uh, what would that entail? Okay, so specific wavelengths of light make things glow. And if you think of it in terms of you go to a, a, an amusement park, and I'm not sure if they, they do this in some places anymore, but they used to stamp your hand with an invisible ink oh, yeah. if you left the park and wanted to come back in. And when it was time for you to go back in, you stuck your hand under a black light, and that ink that's invisible to the naked eye would glow. And it's the same principle with using lasers to detect evidence. If you have a strong laser and you have the proper type of eye filtration, you know, visual filtration, you can see things that you might not see with the naked eye. And we had been researching this for a very long time and collaborating, you know, with other agencies as far away as New Jersey and Michigan, Michigan State Police, Illinois State Police with Ed German. He was a huge resource to us for, you know, utilizing and and learning about what 
we could do with the laser and developing powders and different chemistries that we could use to further develop prints to be able to see them. I, I think it was pretty widely known in California that we had a laser. And even if if I'm not mistaken, before he hit in Orange County, uh, LAPD and LASO had brought us a, a couple of pieces of evidence to look at with our laser from the Night Stalker cases. Oh, okay. That, yeah, that, you know, as kind of a helpful gesture, you know, we were happy to try to find something and help them with whatever we could. And these were typically difficult surfaces that you couldn't use black powder on, like handbags, you know, purses. (laughs) They brought us a cantaloupe once because (laughs) he, yeah, he would always eat something (laughs) when he was at a crime scene. He would get in the refrigerator and eat eat something and leave it laying around. The, the 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 rind or skin or whatever from a cantaloupe that I would that's so textured. I mean, maybe a honeydew I can see, but a <laughs> hey, listen, I knew a guy that got a fingerprint on an onion skin one time. Wow. Well, I mean, yeah. even onion. Okay, that that also be kind of tough, but still, it's a little more uniform. Cantaloupes are so bumpy, though. I don't know. Yeah, we didn't get we didn't get anything on the cantaloupe, but you know, I mean, it, they were grasping at straws, trying everything, right. <laughs> making sure that they had left no processing possibility unturned. Right, and, right. And we were very interested in helping them in any way we could. So, well, and like Glenn and I um, talked about uh, here earlier uh, in the episode, I mean, these are these are terrifying crimes, and. Uh, between the assaults, the murders, and then the blood smeared on the wall with the pentagrams and and everything, I, I I can see you know doing everything you can think of to try to find some bit, some clue, uh, to lead to uh, who this person is. Yes, absolutely, and we were all terrified. And then after he hit in Orange County, you know, that just we doubled down on doing everything we could to help. So because they they had that partial license plate, they actually found that little car in Chinatown and it had been stolen from a church. And so because we had the laser, they decided to put it on a flatbed truck and tow it to us. Oh, wow. So that, yeah, so that we could examine it. And I know that um, LASO had a laser, but it wasn't in a place where they could get to a vehicle with it, number one. And number two, it was a green laser rather than a blue laser. And we were learning through all of our research and collaboration with other agencies that the argon was probably the more viable wavelengths to be able to detect any evidence. Well, and then so also they, back then, I mean, we're talking about a pretty hefty piece of equipment. I mean... Uh, oh, absolutely. It was a non-movable, water-cooled, five-watt... Argon laser. <laughs> wow. The ki- kids today are so spoiled with their portable lasers. Right. That's exactly right. Um, so they, they towed the truck all the way down to Orange County. Yes, they did. And because our laser was housed in an offsite building from our regular sheriff's headquarters, it was also inside, but at least it was on the first floor. And so what they did was they drilled a hole in the block wall of the room that it was in so that we could pass the fiber optic cable outside and be able to use it on this car. 
But of course it was not, you know, safe to just use it and let that light fly around with everybody standing around. Right. So they, even though we did do this examination in the dark, they built a uh, framing and put black plastic over the framing so that <laughs> everything was contained inside that black plastic chamber that they put the car in. So you basically built a little shed for the car. Yes. Knocked a hole in the side of the wall so that you could get the, um, the, the laser fiber optic. fiber optic. It's like a little tube that you can, so you can aim where the, the laser goes. Mm-hmm. That's wow. I can't imagine doing all that, that work for, for one case. I mean, wow. I guess it's a big case, but, um, it was huge. And because, because of the different things that he did in this crime scene and miraculously, Mr. Carnes did not die. Um, oh, right. we, we knew, and from, you know, her description of her assailant, you know, we knew that this was the same person committing all these other crimes all over Los Angeles and Ventura. Wow. Okay. So you got the laser and, uh, I mean, this, this is just for initially for an initial examination before any actual processing, physical or chemical processing, just using the laser to see if anything shows up under that light. So did, did, did right. that, did, did that work? Did you find the fingerprints with the laser? We did not. Oh. <laughs> and um, typically fingerprint residue does not fluoresce unless you've gotten into something like Vaseline or lipstick. Got it. Um, it has to have some something that you've transferred onto a surface that has some dye characteristics for it to fluoresce under the laser. And of course, we didn't have anything that showed up. And but we wanted to be very careful and not disturb anything. Right. You know, perhaps we could find some fiber evidence or, you know, other types of evidence. And having not been particularly successful with that, then they took the car over to our shop area and we started as we normally would or anyone would on the exterior of the vehicle and just use black powder. Okay. So that was the exterior of the vehicle. Did you do any more additional processing on the interior? We did super glue the interior. Okay. And yes, we well, okay, did. Come so this up... is this is August of eighty five, right? Yes. Right. Well, I mean, super glue fuming had just been basically brought over to North America. Just, I mean, right around that same time, right? I mean, had you guys been using super glue fuming for a, a while now? Yes, we we actually had been. We were also experimenting with super gluing. Uh, because one of the people we were collaborating with on the laser was Ed German. Right, and right. He had, yeah, he had been at Camp Zama Japan, and that's where they were doing the research on superglue, and he brought it over to the United States. So he shared that with us, and we got very excited about it because it seemed to be a really viable, great uh, method to secure and make fingerprints permanent. And so uh, we actually, there were times when I would go out on a burglary call and collect different items of evidence. And before I even put them in property, I would stick them in the super glue tank and stand there in the shop and start writing my report and then package them so that later I could go back and do whatever other processes needed to be done. But we knew then, you know, that those prints were fixed and no amount of movement 
in or outside of the bag was going to make them go away. Well, and, and even if there was a backlog and it had to wait six months for additional processing, the the yes. prints have already been fixed on there. They're not going to evaporate or, or you know be lost in any other uh, right. way at that point. Yeah, um, yep. Ed German, you know that's that's kind of legend in the field um, <laughs> yeah. for for decades now, uh, and famously brought over that method from Japan, and might be the nicest guy in uh, the latent print field. He, he's he, he is a he's a good person to know, really is. He really is, and I was lucky enough to get to go to Dr. Menzel's physics class at Texas Tech University, and he happened to be in that class. It was it was really great because when we were completely burned out at the end of the day listening to everything physics, we would go back to the hotel and play Trivial Pursuit. There were several of us in the class, <laughs> and he would not play Trivial Pursuit with us. He would stand or in the kitchenette or or outside, you know with our group right, and explain everything that Dr. Menzel had taught us that day. <laughs> he, he basically he was, translated it all because he, he'd gotten it and yeah. he was just translating it all yeah. to, wow. He already had it down pat and, and he knew that we were struggling. So he would stand there and explain it to us. It was great. That sounds just like good. And that was back to yeah. the, the original Trivial Pursuit, right? Back when it was actually hard <laughs> and it wasn't yeah. just pop culture references. Exactly. Right. Okay. There was some history. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so I uh, did super glue fuming and you saw you also uh, used just plain old black powder. So this is a, a kind of a, a confluence of the the new and the old technologies all all Absolutely. being used on the same item here. Uh, brand Absolutely. new laser and super glue technology, but then also good old fashioned black powder. Well, you know, sometimes the old ways don't die because on a hard, shiny surface, black powder is the way to go. Yeah. And it probably still is. Yeah. I mean, you know, the car had been sitting out for a couple days oh, um, okay. when they found it. So it was, there was probably some, a lot of dust and debris that had settled on the car because, you know, planes going to um, LAX, the mist from the jet fuel, there's just all kinds of junk and schmutz that gets deposited <laughs> on the outside of a car when it's sitting around for a couple of days. And not the first and, time that uh, the technical term of schmutz has been used on this podcast. No. <laughs> well, you know, it, when it came to us, and of course, we were very, very careful to not disturb anything as we were processing the inside of that vehicle. And so then when we worked on the outside of the vehicle, it, there was a process to, to how we were doing this. I would lift about five lift cards and another one of the specialists would take them upstairs to our supervisor, Bob Wagner, and he would start looking through them to figure out if they were viable, identifiable latents. He would also be doing the eliminations on the pastor who owned the car from the church okay, because we had gotten his elimination prints. Right putting one pile here, one pile here, one pile here. And so, you know, every 20 minutes or so, they would run a stack of cards up to Bob. There was a particular print. And of course, you know, you start in one area and you just methodically work your way around the car. Yeah. And when I got to the driver's door, the window was down about eight inches. Okay. And I powdered the glass and I made a lift and I looked at it and it 
seemed really muddy and blocked up to me. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to put some more powder on that area and I'm going to lift it again. And I did. And it was a really good identify, identifiable impression. Hey, that, that that's a really good point. Why don't you actually explain what that is in case the listeners never heard of this technique? Because, I mean, you're absolutely right. I... I, in fact, I just worked a case uh, from New Jersey where it was the same thing. The first lift wasn't so great. They went back powder the second time, and that one was identifiable. You know, I, I, I taught for many, many years, right. and that's one of the things that I would always tell my students is if it looks like it might do better the second time, do it and staple those cards together and call them lift one and lift one A. And, you know, make sure that it's very clear that the detail is from the same area and from the same specific area. In my adventures, I did it, you know, I used that technique many times and was quite successful with it. Yeah, it's it's good for if you're processing and you're later going to compare it, well, then you have multiple chances of the same print to, and you can pick which one has the best detail or right. sometimes the detail is really good in the middle on one on the edges on another. But then also yes. if you're just processing then, uh, and someone else is going to compare same kind of thing, you're given that person multiple options of what, what lift to use, what lift has that best detail. Um, so and I, I think that's a really important point, Eric, yeah. because as we talked about how things are getting specialized nowadays, Oftentimes, the people doing the processing aren't necessarily the people doing the comparisons. So to give those examiners every opportunity to be able to make an identification is everything. And so, you know, going that extra mile and and doing a double or triple lift even is can be very beneficial. Absolutely. Now, we have a latent from the door uh, finger. Um, do you remember what, what kind of pattern it was? It was a plain arch or a tented arch. I don't exactly remember, okay. but it was pointed down as if he had pulled that door closed by grabbing the window and pulling the door closed after he had gotten into the car. Got it. So, and yep, I can, I can picture that. Once we got his major case prints, we were able to identify a palm print that had come up uh, with super glue when we super glued the inside of the car. Right. And of course, have, you know, the palm print, there weren't palm print databases at that time. So you couldn't have necessarily done anything with that. So now you've got a fingerprint. And what do you end up doing with the, the latent fingerprint? We actually had our own in-house APHIS. We had a print track system. Oh, okay. And uh yeah, we ran it through the print track system and it did not hit because he had not capered in Orange County and been arrested and, and uh, you know, booked into our jail. Okay. And so we only had prints from our county agency in our print track database. And again, you have to remember, you know, databases were minuscule back then compared to the <laughs> amount of room they have today right i mean the ngi this nationwide database with the fbi has over 100 million people in it you know times right. 10 fingers that's a billion fingers that's unheard of <laughs> unheard of yeah yeah so yeah we ran it through our our print track system but it did not hit and so they decided that they would take it up to san francisco because 
possibly even the week before this happened, uh, San Francisco went online with the first full database of APHIS cards from all agencies in California. Oh, okay. And And so um, a couple of detectives took it up there and (laughs) by golly. You you can't, I mean, nowadays you just scan it, email it, or upload it. Um, oh, heck no. I mean, this is no driven up to San Francisco, then. right? <laughs> right. Wow. Yeah, wow. we didn't even have computers in our squad room. I mean, they <laughs> the best we could do was a IBM Selectric typewriter. Right, right. <laughs> so, I mean, you really have to think about what we were working with you right, know right. The, the world is a different place uh you know 30 Absolutely. years later Absolutely. okay so uh up in san francisco uh yes. they, they run it now in in this in this brand new system that's just come online and there's a hit there's a hit and the amazing thing about this is that in the early stages of aphis they decided that for the sake of saving space or at least getting all the really, really bad guys into the database, they would only uh, load major crime people who had committed major crimes. They would only load those cards into the database. Okay. And so it, it was very unlikely that anyone that just had a, a petty arrest would be in the database. However, somehow by accident, this card from an auto theft was in the database and it hit to the print on the outside of the car. Wow. Wait, so his print wasn't even supposed to be in the database where it got, it wasn't in your database down in Orange County. And no, it was not the state database that's now just come online like a couple weeks ago. Wasn't even supposed to have his, that is amazing. It was pretty amazing. And of course, it was very much of a secret. And my lab director, uh, or assistant director, Frank Fitzpatrick, pulled me into the current evidence room and said, I'm going to tell you something and you can't tell anybody, but they got a hit on your fingerprint. And I just about died. I It was so exciting. I was so happy. And um, because we knew that this was the Night Stalker. Right, right. And we just didn't know if that guy in the database was the Night Stalker, you know? So we... I mean, technically, he could have, I don't know, been a friend of the pastor, gone to that church, touched the car some other way. I mean, you don't know yet. Lots of different possibilities. Um, Absolutely. I mean, he he could have been a 300-pound, 80-year-old Norwegian man, you know, for all you yeah. knew at the time. Uh, well, and I think when they looked at, you know, the, the individual that was oh, the mugshot, um, right. linked to the fingerprint card, they realized that he kind of resembled those composite drawings. Right, right, the sketches. Yeah. Yeah. In an absolutely unprecedented step, the sheriff of Orange County, Brad Gates, the sheriff of L.A. County, Sherman Block, and the chief of LAPD, Daryl Gates, sat down and all decided that this guy had to be the guy, and they put out his mug photo on the front page of every newspaper in California. So, okay, so this is, uh, they, they didn't know where he was, but they decided, 
Uh, and it wasn't like common practice at the time to to release and say, "Hey, we have, this is the suspect." You know, we we suspect this person of committing some crime. Uh, you know, the name's going to go in the news story, but not the photograph. Oh. I mean, today it's more prevalent than you'll see a mugshot. But right, back right. then it was not unheard of. Wow. Okay. The, the you know the print comes back down. This name comes back down. Do do you get to complete a comparison uh, of of this on your own uh, for your agency? No, I was a lead forensic specialist. I had not completed my major case fingerprint comparison training. Oh, okay. I would do I would do eliminations like when I collected prints at the scene and collected elimination prints from victims. I would do the eliminations on those and then send any unidentified prints um, to one of the senior specialists who did the latent print comparisons. Yeah, so at the time you were mainly doing the processing, it wasn't until later in your career that you you did more of the latent print comparisons. That's correct, yes. I was doing crime scenes, both property crimes and major cases, and I was assigned to work with the laser and and help research some of the um, aspects of using a laser. And so that was really primarily what I was working on at that time. Do you remember how many points the print had? (laughs) Oh gosh, I'm sure it had about 10 or 11. (laughs) Okay. So, so not the biggest print, um, but, uh, but it's still enough to call it. Yes. Got it. And what about the palm? Did you, did you get, uh, did the palm match him as well? It it did match him. I actually never got to look at his palm print in comparison with the one that was collected from the car. But yes. Okay, so this is My. this wasn't searched because there's no palm searching at this point in time in '85. Oh no, no, no. But uh, did did they have palms on record for him uh, at the time from just that previous? No, we car actually arrest? we act, yeah. One of our um, senior specialists went to LA Sheriff's Office after he was arrested. And did major case prints on him. Okay. And then got to compare the palm. Okay. Right. All right. So his, his photos out there. And th- I think this is my favorite part of the, the story um, <laughs> is, is the capture because it's such a, such an amazing part of the story. He had been visiting family in El Paso, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And then he, he is, uh, he comes back and doesn't even realize that his face is just everywhere in California. Correct. So what what happens next? How is he caught? So he gets off a bus. I'm I don't recall exactly where, but I suspect it was Union Station in downtown LA. Okay. And as he's walking through the station, and back in the olden days, there were these things called newspaper stands, and they were metal <laughs> boxes, and and they had windows that you could see what was on the front page of the newspaper, and you'd stick a quarter in, and you'd lift up that glass window, and you'd reach in, and you would take one newspaper, and then you'd put that locking window back down. Or a dollar so on Sundays. as he was walking, what's that? <laughs> or a dollar on Sundays. Yes, exactly. A dollar on Sunday. That's right. <laughs> Maybe a dollar twenty-five. Right. <laughs> anyway, so as he was walking past that newspaper dispenser, he saw his picture on the front page. And so he knew the jig was up, I would guess, and ran into an adjacent neighborhood and attempted to steal a car from a woman. And she fought him tooth and nail and he went someplace else to steal a car. And of course, the neighbors realized what 
there was this huge commotion going on and they started chasing him. It's the and guy then from somebody TV. realized he was the night stalker. Right. What? I mean, I, mean, I, mean, I can just imagine like this whole neighborhood of people, you know, rising up and, hey, it's the guy, it's the night stalker from TV. You know, it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because his picture wasn't just on newspapers. Right, it right. was all over the six o'clock news and the 10 o'clock news and the 7 a.m. news. It was everywhere every yeah every station every channel that's yeah. and so the the crowd pounces on him someone smacks him over the head with a metal bar and they just basically sit on him until the police show up yep that's exactly what happened jeez, I'm, I'm amazed they didn't just tear him to pieces at the time i am too because that's a rough neighborhood over there <laughs> Uh, that's funny. From there, just quickly into uh, a trial, and then they lock him up? Oh, heck no. <laughs> he went to jail, but, you know, L.A. County had several murders that they were trying him for. And because our case was only an assault and a rape, right? they kind of conceded that perhaps L.A. should try to convict him and get the death penalty. And they did. During the process of their trial, they did have a preliminary hearing in Orange County to bind him over for a potential trial. But that trial never happened because he was convicted and he did get the death penalty. Got it. Got it. And what I mean, once you get the death penalty, spending the money for uh, the additional charges, you know, I guess, doesn't really make as much Fiscally sense. Fiscally irresponsible, yes. <laughs> there you go. That's the one way to put it. Uh, so did you, did you, were you called in to testify then? I was. I was called into the preliminary hearing, and I was questioned by the defense team, and they were not skilled, and oh. I'm, I don't know if he had the same defense team in Los Angeles or not, but I felt like they were very quite bumbling and kind of going, you know, running around them just very scattered and asking questions that didn't really have any meaning, asking me to diagram things on a whiteboard that were not relevant to the print that was collected, you know, what I actually did. Right. So I, I, you know, I did fear that, that there would be some backlash from him not having a good defense team. Yeah, well, I mean, and the, the sad thing is that could have potentially led to ineffective counsel, which could have led to the whole thing being done over again and retrials and all that. Um, one of the other lingering memories that I'll always have is, you know, people talked, and especially when he was going through the the court process in LA and the reporters were there taking pictures every day and he would blurt things out and he would talk about the devil and he would hold up his hand with a pentagram that he had drawn on it. Yeah, and, very famous photos in the newspaper. Oh, yeah. and you can find it online. You just search his name and you can see these photos. Yeah. And he was frightening when you re read the accounts, you know, from these reporters and the things that he said and of course, we know that he did some horribly heinous things like gouging people's eyes out and writing on the walls with blood. It, it was really awful. But as I was sitting there watching him and seeing him interact with his attorneys and testifying, I felt sadness for him because I felt like 
he just was not a normal human being. I mean, obviously, <laughs> right. but I really, I really felt sadness for him because I knew that whatever was driving him was not what a healthy person would have gone through, I guess, in, in their life. Yeah. I mean, you go and you hear his story, what he went through as a child, the abuse that he suffered, bad role models that, you know, yeah, I didn't him. know that at the time. I didn't know anything about him when I testified against him. Right. But you kind but of sense that. That's one, yeah. of, that's one of the most striking memories I will always have with me. Wow. Is just how pathetic he was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, his story is sad. I mean, I mean, it doesn't excuse the terrible things he does, obviously, but it just makes you wish that he would have had better when he was younger and that hopefully. Intervention. Yeah. Then. Yep. You know, all these terrible things would just never have happened because, you know, he wouldn't have developed into the monster that he became. Yes, exactly. Oh, wow. I can imagine that being in the same room, just staring, looking over and seeing him across the room for you. That's, uh, mm. you know, so eventually yeah, he was, like you said, convicted. And at, at the time, um, in the, the most expensive trial in California's history, uh, it, it wouldn't last long. Um, nope. <laughs> Uh, Glenn and that I have, have in a previous episodes talked about the the OJ case, but uh, yeah, uh, we've had some doozies. <laughs> hey, uh, yeah, California has still still probably doesn't live up to the to the, all the the crazy stuff that you see coming out of Florida, but uh, but California has had its own array of of very famous cases go down. Yes, we certainly do. Do you still are you still involved in any teaching, or do you still look up? fingerprints uh, uh now i do not no <laughs> i'm still singing i'm still singing though okay <laughs> you fully retired now from fingerprints i have i actually i really enjoyed teaching but i woke up one day in 2014 and said i need to stop doing this before i hate it and that's uh, exactly what i did well, that, that's that's, a, that's an important thing is is uh, having having a career where you really do love what you do. You know, I have always told my kids, if you love your job, you will never ever be miserable. And I woke up every single day and couldn't wait to get to work, whether it was with the sheriff's department or the company I worked for. It was always something exceedingly interesting stimulating motivating it was wonderful that's fantastic and i'll tell you one of the one of the other great parts about that was that the orange county sheriff's department in southern california their crime lab is one of the best in the world one of the most renowned the command staff within the sheriff's department especially in the early days always supported us always wanted us to have the best always wanted us to be able to do the most that we could. And so they were behind us all the way. And they, so we were able to, to be kind of innovative. And so that was a great thing. And I'm very, very proud to have been a part of that. All right. Well, Becky, thank you uh, so much for, uh, for sitting down with us and and talking about uh, your memories, your experiences, your work with this case, just for the listeners out there. Uh, we, we've had uh, multiple technical difficulties in, in recording this <laughs> week. So thank you again so much for, um, for redoing 
the the interview as well so that uh, you know, we could bring this all to the listeners. Uh, but it really has been uh, fantastic to, to hear all this. It's been my pleasure, Eric. Thank you so much. And having been a teacher and, and striving to impart some help and wisdom to many, many students, I hope that whoever is listening to this learns a lot. Thank you again. Hopefully next time uh, I'm in Southern California, maybe if you, you want to show up at a conference and say hi to some old friends, uh, I'll run into you there. That would be fabulous. I'd love it. Big thanks to Becky Daher for coming on uh, the podcast, especially with all the technical issues that we had in, in recording. Just great perspective and great information from uh, the investigation that led to his capture. And I love the the combination of those technologies that led to his capture. Uh, the laser, the super glue, the APHIS, all this brand new stuff that had just come onto the scene and started assisting in, uh, in capturing criminals. Uh, and then good old black powder and doing multiple lifts and, uh, you know, an eyewitness writing down the license plate number. Uh, just everything that that came together that led to his capture. That's uh, that, that's just a fantastic part of the story. Yeah, in, indeed, and I, I just love hearing those those kinds of stories because it it does make you realize the importance of attention to detail, knowing your job, persistence, keep yep. at it. You know, and and I, I just loved her her passion throughout. You know, and her her willingness to essentially leave her vacation to go and assist. You know, with this. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd like to think that I would have such a big heart to, but you know, to go and do that. But I, I really, uh, I I I feel like if I had gotten that call and I was on vacation, I would have been much more the opposite of. <laughs> thank, thankfully, I missed that one, and I'll be back on Monday. Good luck, guys. <laughs> I mean, just the eight-hour drive back, yeah. uh, back to work. And I was like, doing the mental math when she first said that. Of wait a minute, she just left and drove back. And she was at Lake Tahoe. That's that's <laughs> that's like halfway across the country, kind of thing. Uh, yeah. What's what's eight hours away from St. Paul? Oh, uh, Canada, Canada. International International Falls. Uh, I went north, sorry. Oh, north, Uh, okay. uh, St. Louis, you could drive down to St. Louis or Kansas City. St. Louis, wow. Yep. Okay. All right, well, again, big thanks to Becky and and, and hope that uh, despite all of the technical issues recording her and having to do it over again, that that she enjoyed talking about uh, the old times. Well, uh, Glenn, before we close out, I want to mention a, a class that uh, I've talked about a few times now that I have coming up. Uh, April 8th to the 10th, I'm doing my exclusionology class in Hollywood, Florida. And then the 11th and 12th, Gyro in Photoshop, a new class. It'll be the first time I'm teaching it, uh, also cool. in Hollywood, California. And the idea is cram in two classes in the same week. You can go to both. You can go to one or the other. And you can get information on rayforensics.com about that. Uh, or if you have any kind of follow-up questions, you can uh, email me uh, as well. Uh, and I know you've got some stuff coming up, including, uh, was that Hackysack, New Jersey? <laughs> That's right, in Hackysack. Yeah, uh, right. There are two new classes added at, well, three new classes added at RSNA. That's ronsmithandassociates.com in April of 2019. 
there will be an advanced ACV class, which will be in Hackensack, New Jersey. There is also an exclusion and sufficiency class, which is in Baton Rouge. And then this brand new technology and ACV partnership where people get a chance to use technology to enhance and document their ACV in a futuristic way. And that will be in Anaheim, California. That's January 8th, 9th, and 10th. And you can go to ronsmithandassociates.com to register for all of those classes. And actually, one more. And this oh, yeah. is just just for the European listeners because I had a couple of people email me. Uh, it doesn't have to be for the European listeners, but we're also having um, – some courses that we're teaching in Switzerland, uh, which are called level three courses in Switzerland. And those will be actually held in, I'll be teaching with Alice Maceo. We'll be teaching a joint thing where I'm teaching some of my material. She's teaching some of hers combined together. It, it will be translated to French or German, depending on which week. But if people are interested in going over to Switzerland and taking an ACV and distortion class with me and Alice Maceos, well, Alice White, sorry, uh, that will be in May of 2019. So you can contact me directly. That's Glenn at EliteForensicServices.com if you're interested in trying to get to Europe. Or if you're an Australian examiner and Europe's not a problem for you, or you know if you're in the UK, it'd be a bit of a problem for most American and Canadian examiners, but you never know. Uh, so speaking of Australia, I do I want to give a shout out to uh, Gianni Ribeiro, who uh, I got to meet and go to a coffee place, and we just kind of talked about psychology and fingerprints and stuff uh we kind of met through the uh the twitter account uh double loop pod and uh she said she happened to be traveling through to um to the phoenix area over the thanksgiving week to meet up with other colleagues at asu and uh wanted to know if i was free so i got she got to give her a little tour of our uh, lab there and then just continue on with some some kind of cool conversations um got to see some of the papers that i somehow missed here recently from that australian group uh tangent thompson all those guys i actually wanted to ask glenn you heard about this one where they tested latent print examiner's ability they were shown just images of basically fingers one two three four and then shown a a number five finger and asked, do you think this number five came from the same hand as one, two, three, four? Have you heard about this paper at all? No, no, not at all. I was like, that's an interesting little thing. It, they were basically trying to demonstrate that latent print examiners have a, beyond just what they're asked to do, they have a whole lot more abilities than you might even think. It is pretty fascinating. I mean, I, now that I'm thinking about this, we definitely... Yeah, when we you, when you're looking at three potential suspects, you kind of have the sense of which one to start with first, based on ridge count, ridge yeah, yeah. width. You know, yeah, yeah, I, I can sort of see this. And uh, so, it turns out uh, the latent printing examiners are much better at this than lay people. Not really surprising, but I think the 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 cool part was that the lay people, when they made their determination on the sliding scale of basically six options of of how sure are you, uh, yes or no, that uh, the lay people were much more confident in their decisions but were wrong more often. And the latent print examiners, the trained people, were more often correct but more doubtful of their answers. They kind of recognized that 
this isn't something that I've really been trained to do or have tested doing. I so I I'll I'll give it a shot. It turns out they're really good at it, well, pretty good at it. But they were also more appropriately careful in in the uh, when they made those decisions. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, that is really cool. I'll have to check this out. Yeah. All right, so uh, thank you, Johnny, for uh, for sitting and talking with me for uh, for that evening, and and uh, hope you enjoyed your week here in Arizona. If you want to to meet up with us, make friends with us on Twitter, I guess uh, at Double Loop Pod, uh, or you can also contact us, Eric at RayForensics.com or Glenn at eliteforensicservices.com. Listen to us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes. Uh, you can help us out by spreading the word, by telling a friend, by giving a review, or by uh, giving us a rating on those services. Uh, or you can also contribute to us at patreon.com, and that's how you would hear those first 100 episodes, uh, is by being a contributor there. Uh, the opinions expressed on these episodes are those of the speakers and not of anybody else. And with that, talk to you guys later. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Bye.